Um, I want to invite you to turn to Daniel chapter 4 and 5. We're actually going to be mostly in chapter 5. And I'm going to tell you the reason we're going to be mostly in chapter 5 is because chapter 4 is explained in chapter 5. And these two stories are tied together in a series that we are going through on a cultural collision. So if you're with us for the first time today and, and worshiping or you're new to Alpine Bible Church, I want to, I want to welcome you and, and just uh, invite you to turn to the book of Daniel with us. We're going uh, through a series trying to discover how to live our faith uh, when, when faith tends to collide with culture. Inevitably, it will happen because culture tends to live contradictory to the Lord unless it's directed by God. And so how do you as a follower of the Lord pursue God in the midst of a cultural collision? And what does what does that look like in our lives? That's what we're discussing together in the book of Daniel. And the reason we're going through Daniel is because of the historically where this fits in the timeline of, of God's plan of redemptive history. Uh, Daniel and his people were carried into captivity in about 606 BC by the Babylonians. And they found themselves uprooted from where they felt they belonged into a new land, forcing them into a new identity and, and trying to figure out how to walk with God in that. They were in captivity for 70 years. And, and Daniel and his friends become a, a beautiful example of how to follow God when our faith is, is challenged. And so that's why uh, we're in this book together. And, and one of the things, because of, because of the nature of the topic of where we're going today, by the way, if I could avoid any topic in, in conversation, uh, today would be the one. Um, when I say that, I don't want you to be afraid. I'm not, I'm not going to just bring down this hammer and beat us all up. Today. It's not, not my goal. But the nature of today's topic is a difficult topic. So I just, I just feel the need to say this. I'll tell you what we're going to talk about in a little bit. But... Um, as a, a pastor or whatever title you want to see me fulfilling, um, I, uh, I like to view myself as a sheep as much as anything. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't see myself as anyone above anyone else. Um, and I hope I don't ever come across that way. But I feel like what God desires in our lives is for us to figure out how to leverage who we are for the benefit of others. And, and however in life, how high you ever feel like the need to climb, um, I hope in God's kingdom, we see it as, um, in, in God's hierarchical structure, we don't, we don't seek to go higher. We really seek to go lower in being able to, um, be a better blessing to other people. When God made us in the garden of Eden, uh, he, he told Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply and subdue the earth. And, and what he was recognizing for them is that he created them as creatures to be a blessing to the world around them. And, and the older I get in life, really the, the authority and the strength I have, should, it should grow. It should increase. And I think that tends to happen with age. You just have more time and, and you're able to invest more into life and make more money. And so your ability to, to bless this world, I know it's not always the case. Your ability to bless this world, though, the older you get, should expand. And, and in that, if you walk with God, uh, you've learned to not make life about you. But wherever your presence is made known, you learn better to serve. And, um, and, and truthfully, uh, if, if you walk with God the right way, you, you start to see that you're not all that great to begin with. Um, but, uh, but you found a place in the Lord where you're incredibly loved. And I, I feel like this is important to just start off that way because of where we're going to go. So let me, let me, just, let me just share where we've been as kind of a framework in thinking through this book. We've only gone through three chapters of this book, uh, but... But we've seen the cultural conflict that Daniel and three of his friends have intersected with in pursuing God in their lives. And, and what we've learned starting the first chapter is that culture's goal is to redefine our identity. 
Uh, You see, with Daniel, immediately he comes into Babylon. He and his three friends are given a new name and and taught a new way. And they're shaped in the culture of where they are. And that new name was to symbolize a new identity in worshiping these false gods of Babylon. And, And it's no different than any other culture that you'll ever experience in life. The goal of culture really is to redefine your identity, to get you to shape in that mold. In fact, Paul warned us about that in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He said, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Meaning the world wants to fit you in a box. That that being conformed is fitting you in a box, shaping you in a mold. But God wants to transform you from the inside out. He wants to give you a new identity in him. And I think it's very important to recognize what transformation means as it relates to, to God and the gospel. Um, God's not looking for you to impress him because he made you and there's nothing that you're going to do that's going to impress the creator of everything who's capable of doing anything that you can do 10 times better, you know, or infinitely better, honestly. So, so when we think about shaping our identity, the idea of transformation becomes really important. Culture wants to redefine your identity. God wants to transform it. And and in our culture, the conflict becomes, um, we, we try to teach ourselves that, that you are the source of your happiness and you just need to have this self-esteem and need to look within yourself. And I want you to know, God wants you to be happy. I think that's important. God wants you to discover joy in him, but, but you are not the origin of your happiness or, or you're not the origin of your existence. You're simply the evidence that points to that origin. You weren't created for you. And, and the reason I know that is because you didn't make you. God did. And so the, the source of your life and the purpose for which you exist isn't discovered within you. It's not looked deeper within you. That, that's how you create idolatry. Um, the source of your existence, the purpose for your existence is found outside of you. Not in the world around you. The world around you becomes the evidence of it. You are the evidence of it. But the source itself is God. You're created for his purpose. Culture wants to redefine your identity in itself and get you to, to look within you or whatever it shapes. Uh, but God wants you to look towards him. So the, the goal of culture is to redefine your identity. The test of culture is to entice you to bow down to its gods. Chapter 2, chapter 3, you see that playing out actually from chapter 1. When Daniel and his friends are told, if you, if you follow what the king wants, he's going to give you all these luxurious things. He's going to train you, teach you, give you servants, give you clothes, give you a palace. Uh, you interpret his dream. Chapter 2, he's going to give you more of what you want. Chapter 3, he wants you to bow down to this golden statue. And so uh, the test of culture is to entice you to bow down. And the tool of culture is to either distract you or overwhelm you. Distracts you in, in the things it wants to offer you, wealth, whatever, fame, fortune, power. It, it wants to distract you from what God wants to create within you by transforming you or overwhelm you. You remember in chapter 3, the call was to bow down to the statue and Daniel's friends refused to bow down. The, that moment was pretty overwhelming. You know, think of the story in, in Numbers chapter 13 when God brought the people of Israel uh, out of Egypt and he wants them to go in the land of Canaan into the promised land that he had foretold them. And, and when they go to scope out the land, chapter 13, I think it's in like verse 33, the spies that go in, they come back and they're like, uh, they're, grasshop- or they're, they're giants and we're grasshoppers. <laughs> and, and sometimes in culture, the, the point is uh, we tend to get so overwhelmed that we, we make giants out of our problems and we feel very small. And culture wants us to, uh, to if, it, if it can't distract us or tempt us, it wants to overwhelm us to conform to its image. But God is calling us to something greater. And chapter 4 and 5 is, is that place where that struggle is met. Chapter 4 and 5 uh, talks about two different kings, two different individuals, two different stories. But really, uh, it's focusing here in these two chapters on the same topic. And what is that topic? 
I think, and, and thinking and think through this cultural collision, I think chapter 4, chapter 5, th- this topic is the greatest battle any of us face in our relationship with God in any culture we experience. Now, before I tell you what that is, let me just unfold some of this passage. Chapter 1, or chapter 5, verse 1, maybe... You're going to have to give me control, Tara. Chapter 5, verse 1 starts with this story. Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles. So so remember we started with Nebuchadnezzar. and We're we're beyond Nebuchadnezzar. We're we're to Belshazzar now. This is not Belteshazzar. Daniel's name was changed to Belteshazzar. But we're talking about King Belshazzar here. And, And this is a number of kings past Nebuchadnezzar. And so Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. Um, when this story starts to unfold, one of the interesting things that they think historically is taking place here is, is, is Babylon's actually being besieged. Uh, some people have come against it and fought, and this place is so fortified that this king was so arrogant that he thought it's, they, had, they had enough food within this city that they could have lived 20 years inside of its walls. They weren't worried about anyone coming against it, and they felt the walls were impenetrable. And so this king's like those fools, and he throws this feast for all of his friends just to show off about how powerful they believe Babylon is. So while they're being attacked, he's like, who cares? Those peons, they can't mess with us. And so he's having this feast inside. And, and to give an idea of what kind of feast this is, it's telling us in chapter 5, verse 1, that they're drinking wine in the presence of thousands. So in, in the first four verses, if you look at this chapter, you're going to see wine talked about repetitiously over and over. They're drinking wine, they're drinking wine, they're drinking wine, they're drinking wine. So I think what they're trying to get us get across to us here is these guys are pretty wasted. I mean, they're drunk, right? This party is, is just bananas. And, and in verse five, it gets a little freaky as to how um, insane it gets. I don't know why. I don't, okay, there we go. Verse five. It says, suddenly, I don't know if you've, <laughs> hopefully you've never been to a party like this, but it says, suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lamps and the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. So <laughs> I can imagine this moment where everyone is, is so messed up out of their minds. And all of a sudden someone's like, dude, <laughs> like, <laughs> Tell me I'm not the only one that sees this. <laughs> Do you see the hand on the wall? I just wanted to say, if, if you're ever in a moment where you experience this, you, you just need to stop and examine your life, okay? And, and so they're having this party, and, and, and it's getting way out of hand, and, and they see this hand uh, start to write on the wall. Um, I've seen some people take this passage to try to teach that, therefore, God the Father has a physical body or God the Father has a hand, just by way of theological side note, I want you to know when you consider what God the Father looks like scripturally, in no way in the context of the Bible does, is God the Father ever described as having a physical body. In fact, in Colossians 1.15, Jesus is called the image of the invisible God. In John 4.24, it says, God is spirit. And in Luke 24.39, it says, a spirit has no flesh and bones. In 1 Timothy 6.16, it says, no one has ever seen God and no one will ever see God. In John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. So when it describes God here having a, the hand of God writing on the wall, this is what we call anthropomorphism. 
We're to attribute certain characteristics to God to help him be more relatable to our understanding in life. So when you read the Old Testament, New Testament, you'll even see God's described as being a chicken with wings or an eagle or a mountain or a bear. God's got these different anthropomorphic descriptions of him for us to understand a certain aspect of his characteristic or identity. And so in this passage, it's not saying that God has a physical body. Now, I will tell you, in Scripture, the Bible tells us that Jesus became flesh. And he says in John 49, so God becomes flesh in Christ. And in John 49, Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Because Jesus is demonstrating the same characteristics of the Father in the flesh. And it even says in Colossians 2.9 that Jesus is the explanation of God the Father in the flesh. But if this passage isn't teaching that the Father has flesh simply getting us to identify the characteristic of God that's being made known here. So why did this hand show up? I don't want, I don't want any hand of God coming down and putting judgment on my life. So I think it's an important question to ask. Like, how can I be in your grace, God, not in your judgment? Why did this hand show up? Well, it tells you in verse 2. So if I backed up just a little bit, this is what happens. When Belshazzar uh, tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and the silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his king, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem. So that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So what it's saying is is that this king had the arrogance to take the sacred things of God and treat them without the respect they deserved. If you read Daniel chapter 1 verse 2, you see back when Nebuchadnezzar conquered the Jews, he took the belongings of the temple. But now here in this story, we have, we have this, this story unfolding of a, of a king who is so arrogant that then he takes those possessions from the temple and he begins to use them for his own party. And therefore God's judgment comes. And this king, the story tells us, is so freaked out by the hand of God and what it's doing that he just goes, he just goes white. Verse 6 talks about that. His knees start knocking. Verse 9, verse 10. I mean, he gives out an audible cry of just being fearful of whatever's taking place there. So much so that his grandmama comes in the room. She's like, what's wrong, honey? And that's, that's kind of how the story unfolds. And so, and so he's freaking out. And he says this. Okay, whoever can solve why in the world this hand is just writing on the wall right now. I'm going to make you really rich. In fact, in, in verse 7, it says the king called aloud to bring in the conjurers and the Chaldeans and diviners. And, and king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. So if you just imagery of what that looks like and what this king's exactly going to do, we've seen it, Right. Purple rain. No, I'm just kidding. So, so I mean, that's pretty much it. Purple, gold, decorated, and rule. And then the the king's grandmama (laughs) remembers something. There was a man who was wise, who God has used in this kingdom to interpret dreams and to reveal things to us. And she started to talk about Daniel. And um, this king brings Daniel in. And I think to a little bit of degree continues to demonstrate his arrogance. He says, aren't you the man that was conquered by my people? Aren't you part of the Jews that were conquered? Aren't you beneath us? 
And he says, you know, I've heard it said that you've done some pretty spectacular things. He's sort of given this idea. I don't know that I necessarily trust you yet because I haven't seen this demonstrated. But I've heard it said that you, you have done this, these things. And, and the reason this person hasn't experienced it to this point is you think right now you're five chapters into Daniel. Daniel was taken into captivity when he was a teenager. But at this point in Daniel's life, he's most likely in his 80s. And so what you have transpiring over these five chapters is a significant amount of time in history. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar ruled for 43 years. So the events that you read in the first four chapters of Nebuchadnezzar's life, that happened over decades. And so this young man just hasn't experienced the, the, the authority of, of God that's placed in the life of Daniel as God works through Daniel as Daniel surrenders his life to the Lord. So he's in his 80s and he comes before the king and the king's saying, listen, I want to make you purple rain. And Daniel's like, I don't, want anything, I don't want anything to do with that. I mean, I'm in my 80s now. This stuff doesn't impress me anymore. And, and, and I really don't want anything to do with what you're about because you're insulting God. But he says to him, but I will interpret your dream or the inscription. And so then verse 18 sort of begins the, the main focal point of, of what this chapter is. And he says this, O king, the most high God granted sovereignty and grandeur, glory and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. There was no one more powerful than Nebuchadnezzar. You know, one of the most interesting things in this story, you think about we, we talked here in the beginning that uh, culture will try to shape you in its identity. And it will try to entice you and satisfy you. But you read the first five chapters of Daniel, or the life of Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world. And his soul still never settled until this story starts to unfold. So men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed. And whomever he wishes, he spared alive. And whomever he wished, he elevated. And whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was disposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. So during the 43 years of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, to humble him, God actually made Nebuchadnezzar think he was a beast of a field. And Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind. Now he later got his mind back, but God used that in all of his glory and brought him low. And it says this, he was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of beasts and his dwelling place was like that of wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with dew of heavens until he recognized that the most high God is ruler over the realm of mankind. And that he sets it over whom he wishes. That you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Even though you knew all this, but you've exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. And they have brought the vessels of his house before you. So he's saying, you want the demonstration of how you've shown yourself to be arrogant. You've used the sacred things of God for your own glory. You pause here and just say, you know, the problem of the king, both chapter four and chapter five, one word, Pride. The greatest battle a Christian faces or an unbeliever faces in their relationship to the Lord, regardless of the culture, it's pride. 
And we talk about cultural collision. What we're saying is, out of all the things that you face, out of all the struggles you might have in a cultural collision, the, the greatest battle you honestly will fight is within yourself. I look at this story and I realize, okay, this morning we're going to talk about pride. (laughs) How do you do that? I think it's even worth myself to recognize I'm not innocent. And truthfully, think think about this. and no one wants to talk, no one wants to have a lesson about pride, especially if you're proud. Like if you're proud, then you need to hear a lesson on pride, but you're probably most apt to not listen to a lesson about pride. Like, how do you do that? How do you share a lesson on pride when people need to hear about pride? When in pride, you're not going to want to listen to a lesson about pride. You know, I was thinking this week, um, uh, we, I don't think we take the idea of the sin of pride too, very serious. And, and, and it made me immediately, thinking about this this week, one time in my life, I, I, moved, I moved out to Utah. And this is before ABC existed, but I was out with the church on a men's retreat. And uh, it was like 30-some guys. And we decided we were in Hobble Creek Canyon. And we're like, oh, this has got a nice golf course. Let's take our, all of our guys to go golfing. And I'm, I don't, I'm not a golfer. I don't like to golf. I'll go golfing if some guys go, if you ask me enough times, I guess, like I've, I've done golfing as young, a younger kid. I was decent at it when I was younger, but when I was 18, my clubs got stolen and I didn't pick up another golf club for like 15, 20 years. So I'm, I'm not that great at it, you know, but I'll do it sometimes. And here we are on this men's retreat. They decide they want to go golfing. I'm like, okay, I'll go golfing. And I decided, you know what? I'm just going to be arrogant. I'm, I'm going to there. I could tell none of these guys are golfers and I'm just going to tell them I'm the best thing since sliced bread when it comes to golfing. Cause they're trying to figure out how to break up teams. They're like, let's break up according to our abilities. So that way it's it's at least competitive. I'm like, all right, I'm the best one. So put me with the worst guys. And I'm thinking this is going to be great because it's going to be horrible. So uh, guys, I, honestly, I don't know any better golfer than me. It's like, so we get out on this golf course and, and when you know it, like the first two holes are like the best two holes of my life. I'm like past two holes. I'm one under and I'm like, oh my word, what is that? And I'm with, I'm with the scrubs. I won't tell you their names, but one of them may be here. And, and uh, so I'm, we're, we're, we're golfing and like, I'm having the game of my life. I'm like, this is impossible. And I'm just, I keep playing it up. I'm like, yeah, guys, I told you I'm awesome. I mean, just ride my coattails. I'll take you to the victory. (laughs) So we get to the third hole and one of these guys is like, I think he's might be teasing us a little bit. So he pulls me aside. He's like, seriously, how good are you? I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll prove it. And, and, and about that time I looked down this fairway right before I got a tee off and, um, these Turkey are crossing the fairway, like 250 yards out. And I look at the guys. I'm like, guys, I know you may not believe how great I am, but just, just to prove it, um, I'm going to hit those Turkey. And I put my T on the ground and I tee up. And I'm like, what am I doing? <laughs> You're such an idiot. And they go, well, this is great. <laughs> and I swing and I hit, I hit a horrible drive. It was one of those drives where, um, you know, the drive's supposed to go so many yards off the ground. Well, this one, for whatever reason, only went like four feet off the ground and it just goes like a B and you can see it right for the Turkey. It's almost like I intentionally did this and I'm saying, I'm watching this thinking, no way, 
no way. And all of a sudden, this, this, the turkey turns and its rear end is facing us. And it puts its wings out like this on the side just a little bit. And my ball hits the ground and it bounces up just a little bit. And it nails that stinking turkey right in the back of the neck. It was unbelievable. It's flopping around the ground. It's like, and I just look back at the guys and I'm just like, see, I am amazing. And, I, I, and, then, and then for the rest of the round, I shot like, you know, 2,000 over or something. But, but for those three holes, man, it was awesome. Pride. <laughs> Only time in my life, I'm just like, I'm living in it, man. I want to just be proud. And, um, and it worked out so well. <laughs> but the point is, um, we don't always take pride seriously. Sometimes we even tell sermon illustrations about how great you are, right? But you know, Proverbs 8.13 says this. The fear of the Lord, which we talked about last week, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. But pride and arrogance, it says, I hate. Pride is contrary to really walking with Jesus. Pride is what stands in our way in our relationship with God. And we really, a lot of times, don't take it seriously. Let me, let me give you an example. If, if, if I said to you, if I came up here this week and I said, guys, you know, I'm just going to be honest. I really struggled with lust this week. In fact, I struggled so, so bad, I'm having a difficult time not checking you out right now. I mean, you'd be like, dude, that is creepy. You know, like if I start just staring you down, you'd be like, uh, I don't know if I can go to that church. <laughs> that makes me feel awkward and forget it. That is, that's creepy. But if I came up at the same, same time and I just said, you know, guys, I'm really struggling with pride. I think we have a tendency to shrug some things off and other things we might just find unacceptable. And I think one of the most destructive things or the most destructive thing to our relationship with God is pride. In fact, Proverbs 8.13, God hates it. He hates it. In our culture, sometimes we're good at trying to mask it because it is so destructive. We, we call it things like believing in yourself or building yourself up or showboating or self-esteem. We mask it under things like that to make it, you know, not, not sound that bad. But, but pride is destructive. Pride kills. It kills our relationship with God. It, it kills our relationships with others. In, in fact, one of the uh, prominent counselors in, in marriage talks about this thing called the crazy cycle. And he says in relationships, what tends to happen is you will get offended. If your spouse offends you, then you react in that offense to defend yourself. And usually when you react in that offense to defend yourself, you offend them. And then all of a sudden now they're offended that you offended them. And so to defend themselves, they react and they offend you. And then what happens is it's a crazy cycle of it just going around and around and around and around. And you know when it stops? In vulnerability. In humility and putting the interests of someone else above your own. Pride kills. Pride kills our relationship with God, it kills our relationship with others. It really elevates us above others and puts others beneath us, which is completely contrary to the demonstration of Jesus in his own life. It brings a crazy cycle. And here in the book of Daniel, 
Greatest obstacle we see in our relationship with God in the midst of culture. We ask that question so many times we start thinking, looking external, looking external. How do we fight the bad things? Truth is, truth is the greatest battle happens here. In our hearts. Some have said this, looking at reading theologians this week, some have said this. Some have considered pride to be the root and essence of sin. And others consider it to be sin in its final form. Either way, what they're acknowledging, those theologians and looking at pride, either it's the root that leads to all sin or it's the end that culminates what sin becomes in our lives as we act it out. Either way, pride is a source. I honestly would say it's the most destructive tool in human history. In fact, Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction. And when you look at that, as it historically has played itself out, you you consider Satan in in Isaiah 14. It says, I will be like the most high. God brings him low. And then when Satan goes to the Garden of Eden, he tells Adam and Eve, surely God didn't say that. He doesn't, he's keeping his best from you. If you eat of the apple, if you eat of the fruit, you can be like God. I mean, you'll take that position. You'll be proud. And in so doing, pride becomes the most destructive tool in human history. I like how J. Vernon McGee said it sometimes. Like, you look at Adam and Eve, and what Adam and Eve are, are, are doing, they're, um, they're, they're answering the question of, you know, if, if I were God, I think I could do it better, Right? God's, God's got it all messed up. And so if I were in that position, I would be better at it. <laughs> and so I'm going to knock God out of his place. I'm going to usurp myself in that position to lead because I'm, I'm better at this than you are, God. Yeah, I, I find that question often asked with, um, <clears throat> number one question I think I get asked with people that don't believe in God or have a difficult time with trying to wrestle with the existence of God is, if God, if God exists, <clears throat> why are so many bad things happening in the, in the world? And, and they're, they're fighting, a, a, I think, a noble question at first. I, don't, I think the conclusion becomes wrong. A noble question is, if, if God is good, then why do bad things happen? Because if he's sovereign, but bad things happen, he cannot be good, right? Or... Uh, or he's, he's weak, right? Because a good God who is sovereign would only make good things happen. Since bad things happen, there must not be a good God. That's, that's the conclusion uh, that they make. But, but you know, it's, it's interesting. When people make that judgment, therefore God must not exist because bad things happen. And if there was a good God, good things would only happen. Um, the judgment they're using to make that decision that, that God doesn't exist is only pointing to the existence of a God. Meaning, who told you what's good and what's bad? Where do you think that comes from? <laughs> you know, I often say, I often say, um, you know, I, I think maybe you're wrestling with how it fits, how God fits with bad things in this world. But the truth is, by asking that question, I think you're carrying the very heart of God into it, because you're not content with the bad things that happen in this world. And guess what? Neither's God. You think that the bad things are happening, and you and judging it are proving that God doesn't exist, but rather it's acknowledging his very existence by demonstrating the, the desire for good to exist and rule and reign in this world. And that's what God's desire is. Now he's working it out in history, and I'll invite you to read the Bible to discover how that looks, but it's pointing to his existence. 
But here in the story of Adam and Eve, Satan, it's, it's, it's saying to God, God, I can do it better. And, and J. Vernon McGee said it like this. He just kind of summarized it. He said, uh, this is God's universe. And I'm sure you could run it better, but you don't have a universe. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Maybe he, maybe he does know a little bit more than me since he created this thing. But pride is the issue. What is pride? Pride is linked to arrogance. It's the opposite of humility. It's the elevation of yourself at the expense of lowering others, whether it be God or your relationship with humanity. And then the story, you see this king, Belshazzar, used the illustration of Nebuchadnezzar, as it's told in chapter 5. This, these two kings are all about their, their selves, pursuing their dreams, making life about them, Maybe leaving us to ask the question, what dictates your pursuits? When you wake up and do the things you do in life, what's the motivation? Self-pleasure? Or does it start with God, you created me for a purpose? God, what is it you desire? Make your glory known. I think the struggle in Christianity sometimes, I, I, I think you will never find your, Christians, I'll tell you this, you will never find yourself happy if this is what you do, what I'm about to tell you. Sometimes we see God as like this add-on where I, I live my life and then I come to God and I give God what I think I, I'm obligated to give him so that way I've, I've covered my bases, right? And, and God sort of becomes this add-on. And then when you consider your relationship with God, you sort of, we sort of will approach it like this. Whenever I have a need, I'll just ask him. You know, I'll come to him. I'll treat him like a genie who's supposed to give me my three wishes. Occasionally, I hope he answers on the ones I want, but sometimes at some point, I'm, I'm sure he will. And so your relationship with God, you more leverage God as an individual that's supposed to serve you rather than you created to serve him for his glory. And I don't think we'll ever find ourselves happy in that struggle. I think the contentment in the Christian life always starts with understanding life is not about you. It's not saying that God doesn't want you to be happy. It's not saying God doesn't want you to experience joy. But it's just to acknowledge the the source of your existence isn't discovered within you. And then in recognizing that, come to God and say, God, you created me for your glory. And the greatest gift I can give you in love is myself. So God, whatever you want, have your way. I want to know you and enjoy you for eternity. I think in that surrendering, that's when the Bible talks about the the peace that passes all understanding and the fruit of the Spirit being made known in our lives. And that's that's what God has, has created us for. So what are your pursuits? What drives what you do when you wake up? See, in... um, Daniel chapter 5, actually it's supposed to be verse 26. Let me read chapter 5, verse 26. I don't have it up there. Um, Verse 26, Daniel comes and he starts to give the interpretation. And he says some great words, verse verse 25, many, many tekel aparsin. It sounds like more like a... um, a spell, <laughs> anything, but, but he says he's many, many tekel a parson, and this is the interpretation of the message. And he goes on to interpret it, and it tells us in verse 20, I just want to, um, and I'm going to start verse 27. He, he says this, in, 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 in talking about this interpretation, he says, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. 
God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. And he goes on through these other ideas. You're, uh, verse 27, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Um, when he talks in this story, he's, he's sort of giving that uh-oh moment, right? Like Just to say, okay, pride is destructive. Pride is destructive. Um, so many times in life, we just want to distract ourselves. We want to use culture to distract ourselves. We don't want to just sit with ourselves, you know. And, um, and culture is good at that, but but God wants to bring us to this place to recognize just pride is destructive. And so He does it in this story by writing on the wall. Pause your heart for a minute. What will it take to wake you up? And this is the cranking the music. ACDC highway to hell here. I want, you to, I want you to think for just a second and inevitably where this road leads. And so God uses Nebuchadnezzar to deliver uh, this, this thought and to examine his heart. And I, I love this story. The story unfolds here between two stories. Chapter four, chapter five, two different kings. Nebuchadnezzar built the Shazar. And this should say, uh, this should be chapter four here in verse 30. It tells us Nebuchadnezzar's response. It says, Nebuchadnezzar in chapter four said, is this not this great Babylon I have built at, at the royal residence by my mighty power and the glory of my majesty? And that's the, at this point in the story, this is where God strikes Nebuchadnezzar. And then Nebuchadnezzar, in going to the beasts of the field and eating with the animals, finally lifts his head to God. And it says this, verse 34 of chapter 4. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards the heavens. And my sanity was restored. And then I praised the Most High, honored and glorified Him forever. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. I love verse 37 because it's actually in the active tense. What Nebuchadnezzar is saying is the active present tense. So what it's telling us about Nebuchadnezzar is that he praised, exalted, and glorified God for the rest of his life. And I believe this becomes evidence to ask the question, will I see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven one day? I think, I think you will. This saying, this attitude that transformed uh, Nebuchadnezzar's life in just praising God. Now, now the, the, the story juxtaposes itself then against this other king, Belshazzar, because it tells us within the story, he gets scared. Verse 6, verse 9, verse 10, he turns white, his knees are knocking, but he never humbles himself. He still continue, continues to see himself as the source. So the question is, how do I know if I'm proud? How do I know I struggle with pride? And let me say this. Let me just ask these questions. I ask myself, and this, I'm not trying to make this personal for you. I, I want to examine my heart. Am I easily offended? Do I talk down to others when I don't get what I want? Do I feel entitled? Do I have a judgmental spirit towards those who don't make the same lifestyle choices as me? Do I look down on those who, have, who are less educated, less affluent, less refined, less successful? Do I have a harsh spirit that's finding fault? Am I argumentative? Do I generally think that my way is the right way, the only way, and the best way? Yeah. <laughs> Do I become defensive when I'm criticized? Do I always have the answers? Do I have a sharp, critical tongue? Can I say I'm sorry when I make mistakes? 
Am I afraid to ask questions or admit that I don't know? Do I compare myself to others? Do I frequently interrupt people when they're speaking? Do I worry about what others think of me? Do I talk about myself too much? Am I offended when my acts of service aren't recognized? Do I look at the things that I have in life as a gift? Or do I look at them as what I deserve? Are you self-conscious because of your lack of education or beauty or economic status? Do you give undue time, attention, and effort to your physical appearance, your hair, your makeup, your clothing, your weight, your body, your shape? Are you sitting there thinking of how many of these questions apply to someone you know? Are you feeling pretty good that, that none of these questions really apply to you? Or what about just in your relationship with God? Do you have a hard time confessing your sins before the Lord? Do you have a hard time sharing your spiritual needs and struggles with others? Do you have a hard time praying out loud with others? Or how about this? Have you ever given your life to Christ? If not, why fight? Why battle? What keeps you from surrendering? The writing's on the wall. This example of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar is an illustration of our lives. You think about in Jesus' day, people dealt with pride even then. The Pharisees, they hated Jesus. They hated Jesus. Jesus took the spotlight. They, they want what Jesus had. Jesus is not doing, uh, falling in line the way that they want him to. And so they, they wrestled with Jesus. And, and, and I like how Paul writes this in Galatians. I want us just to think about this for a minute. Because uh, when it comes to the gospel, guys, I think the gospel in our pride is the solution to everything. And, and this is why. And if I want to talk about pride, here's the tendency. And we can do this in a very proud way. We start beating ourselves up about how bad we are. And in fact, you can, you can talk about how you're more humble now than talking about pride. And we start, we start beating ourselves up and we don't see the solution. Religiously, we start thinking, I need to feel pretty bad about myself because of pride. And I'm going to tell you, that's not the answer. The answer is the gospel. And what I mean, in religious ways of thinking, we start obeying these rules because we're bad people to try to make God love us more. And that's not the gospel. The gospel isn't about shaming you. The gospel is about recognizing how we aren't the source, we aren't the solution to our sin and being able to reconcile our problem with God. It's not us. Now, when we talk about pride, it helps us to see that. I have messed up. And in a religious way of thinking, we'll be like, but I'm not as bad as that guy, so I'll be okay when I see God. Ooh, don't want to be him. But the truth is God is perfect. God is perfect. There's not a person in this room that has a leg to stand on. Now you say, that's not good. That's not, that's not good. It's not. But here's, here's the joy of the gospel. God created you for relationship. God made you to know him and enjoy him forever. And the Bible, in being honest with us, wants us to recognize that we can't bring that solution to enjoy God forever in ourselves. Once you sin against the holy God, you can't undo it. You need grace and forgiveness. That's why the Bible tells us, Romans 3.23, all have sinned. No one in here is better than anybody else. No one on planet earth is better than anyone else. All have sinned. 623, the wages of sin is death. That doesn't just mean you're going to go to a grave one day. Death means you're separated from God. Death means, in its, in its most basic sense, death means separation. And when the Bible talks about death, it's not talking about being in a grave. It's talking about you separated from God. 
But you need reconciliation. You were created for life. You were created to know him. You can't earn that back. Adam and Eve tried to do that in the Garden of Eden. They sinned, they ran from God, they put on fig leaves. That word for fig leaves means a soldier's garment. They tried to put on a soldier's garment to fight the battle on their own. They built the first man-made religion. They hid from God. God is the one that pursued them. You want to know the theme of the Bible? It's one word, redemption. God is pursuing you for relationship in him. It's not based on you. It's based on his grace. It's based on his forgiveness. He created you for that relationship. He loved you so much, the Bible tells us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for you. In your ugliest state, Jesus gave his life for you. And the most pride that you've ever had, no matter how many turkeys you've whacked in the back of the neck, Jesus died for that. Poor turkey. (laughs) Jesus died for you. Why? Because you're not going to go before him and impress him. But I can tell you this. You've never been loved to the extent of which Christ has loved you. He wants that relationship with you. So what does it give us the opportunity to do? Well, Jesus came, Jesus died for all of that so that you could enjoy relationship with him forever. That's why in John 3, 16, it tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believeth in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You live forever in relationship with God. And when it talks about believing in, it's not saying believe like George Washington believed, like I believe in George Washington. Yeah, everyone, okay, historically it's been demonstrated. George Washington existed. That's not the kind of belief. Believing in literally means trust. I take this soul created for your purpose, finding its redemption in my God who died on my cross and saying, God, that's what I believe will pay for my sin to reconcile myself to you, to enjoy you for all of eternity. Pride pride isn't about feeling bad. I don't want to walk out of here and just feel bad. That gives us no solution at all. I want to walk out of here and be loved. I want to walk out of here and understand that in the midst of this pride that I wrestle with in my heart, God still, he still loves me. And he cares about me. And that's exactly how this book, or chapter five ends. And that's exactly what he says. In the midst of this pride, Oh, I missed it. I skipped it. In the midst of this pride. Ah, it's the wrong passage. (laughs) Verse 28, when he says this, he says, Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Now, I want you to know, when you read that, you're like, okay. Like the Babylonians are done, the Medes and Persians. What, What does that mean? When you read Jeremiah chapter 25, which Daniel would have been in tune to at this point. Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 and 12. In that passage, it tells, Jeremiah tells the people, you're going to be taken into captivity because of your pride. And in 70 years, I'm going to set you free. And Daniel's been in Babylon now for 70 years. And what this is, is a demonstration of God's redemptive hand being worked in history. It's God coming to Daniel at 80 years old, 80 plus years old, and saying, Daniel... I still love you. I'm still here for you. I care about you. This past week, I need to close with this, but this past week I was, um, uh, it was actually a couple weeks ago. um, They tell, I read an article that said pastors rank high on the manic depressive scale of which I believe it, but um, the reason they said is because you pour so much of your heart into what you do. Like on Sunday, I'll give my heart into this. And then 
you know, you could get criticized with it later. Or there's this, this letdown. It's like this release when you're done. You expose your heart and then you're done. So you go on this like way ups and downs, you know. And, and, I, and I called one of my friends and I just told him, man, I'm having a, I just feel so isolated and I'm having a difficult time. And I, I was just sharing with him and, and uh, he, he did a good job of, of um, putting me in my place. And, but he, he didn't know that he was doing it. He was very gracious in his attitude. But he, he said, man, don't assume God doesn't know. And I translated it as, don't be so arrogant as to assume God doesn't know. <laughs> don't, don't assume God doesn't know. God knows. God knows. Here I was, here was in my pity party of pride, thinking, here, isolated poor me over this dumb circumstance. But I know we all go through it. Whether you're uh, working, living a life as a mom, and you feel like you're isolated out there on your own, or you're doing something at a job, and you take, stick your neck out there, and you just feel, you feel like you're in a spot. You're like, where, where are the people that care? Here I am, poor me. I just, God even care? And he just says, you know, God knows. And then he said this. He said, don't expect more out of you than God expects out of you. Like, dude, who do you think you are? Why are you expecting more out of you than, than God does? God, God knows. God knows. Just be faithful. Have you ever felt like you're fighting the battle all on your own or you can't get to the top or you just keep struggling, you keep fighting, you just get in that spot where you're throwing that pity party and you feel so isolated on your own and you start asking questions, God, don't you know? God, don't you care? Like Daniel in these moments would be saying this in his 80s now, still in captivity. God, do you not care? We could say this. Here I am standing all alone. Who's going to look out for me? And then you just kind of remember when you start considering God, God knows and he doesn't expect more. Like, then you just say to yourself, Nathaniel, who, whose battle is this really anyway? Like, what is it you think you're going to do in your own strength? What, what battle do you think that you're trying to fight? This isn't your battle. It's God's. Because I belong to him. I don't need to walk in my pride to find my strength to combat this. Let's trust in him. And then, and then as he's saying this, man, I, I just had this, this verse come in my, my mind that God just floored me with. And I, and I just started thinking of, of King David. I, in my head, I was thinking, what about King David? I, I know, I mean, I'm not King David, but I know he ruled, and I know, and I'll think of the Psalms, and, and, and he got to these places in his life where he felt so isolated, and then, I, oh, what, what would he say in these moments? And then I just remembered Psalm 23, and, it, and he said in that Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. It's not me. The Lord is my shepherd. Here's this king, and he probably feels, I mean, when you get to the top of the pyramid, it is a lonely place to be. And then you're saying, God, where, where's my soul? Where's my place? Where, where, how do I know you love me? And then he just says this on the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me. Green pastures and the still waters. Look, he restores my soul. God, what a beautiful place it is. Pride will lead you to the things that will kill you and keep you from the things that will heal you. 
Step up for a moment before God. Could be vulnerable. And just say, the Lord is my shepherd. I don't have to fight these battles. The king works it through me.